Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. My breakfast this morning helps to set the stage for today's conversation about food. Now, my normal breakfast cereal box often features a suggested serving with sliced strawberries atop the cereal. It looks nice and it tastes good, but I find there's something weird about eating fresh strawberries in the wintertime, so I abstain. As you'll find out later in the program, both the product placement and the presence of year-round strawberries are a function of America's chemical industrial complex, and that's not good news for the workers who pick those strawberries. Anyway, I opted for something different on my cereal today, a sliced banana. But when you think about it, that bland fruit shipped thousands of miles from Central America probably comes with a bunch of its own environmental baggage. And as we'll learn, it might soon be bye-bye banana as a fungus threatens the worldwide crop. If you have thoughts or questions about where your fruit comes from, you can join the conversation. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. We're going to start somewhere today, though, that I personally feel pretty good about. I like to think that I do a good job of not wasting food. I don't buy more than I consume. I use and reuse everything I do buy. But did you know that roughly one-third of the food we all produce each year is either lost or wasted? That's the subject of a new book by John Mandyke, Chief Sustainability Officer at United Technologies Corporation. He's co-author of Food Foolish, The Hidden Connection Between Food Waste, Hunger, and Climate Change. John Mandyke joins us in studio. Welcome to Where We Live. John, good to be here. So first of all, let's just talk about the, the big problem we can use statistics uh, to really set the stage for all this. When we talk about how much food we waste, maybe you can put in some perspective for us here. Sure. We waste 1.3 billion metric tons of food every year. It's a mountain of waste generated each and every year. If you think that an elephant weighs one metric ton, think about 1.3 billion happy, healthy, healthy elephants standing in one pile. That's the amount of food that we waste and lose every year. And when we say waste and lose, what does that mean? Where does it go? Well, about one-third of all the food that's wasted happens at the consumer level. That's where we buy too much and throw it away, and that's really a rich country problem. Two-thirds of the food that we lose or is wasted happens in developing countries, happens at the production and distribution level, where food rots in poor transportation networks or it rots in open-air markets. So this is coming alongside, and we're going to be talking about some of the bigger global implications of all this, that in a rich country like ours, we clearly have more food than we even use, piles and piles and piles of it. But there's lots of people in the world who don't have enough food, and we're trying to figure out a way to grow enough food for them, right? Well, actually, we grow enough food to feed 10 billion people. We live on a planet of 7 billion, and only about 6 billion are getting enough food. That right there shows you the inefficiency of our food system, where a third to 40% of our food never makes it from farm to our fork. I can't think of anywhere else in society we tolerate 40% inefficiency in anything, yet we do it with our food system. Now, why is that? Why did we get to the point where we figure, out oh, 40% loss is just about right when it comes to growing food? I think we've naturally thought that an, uh, the, the outgrowth of, uh, of growth in society is that we just waste food. And I think we're coming to a point now where we are understanding the scale and the consequence of doing that. 
There's uh, people who are hungry every day uh, that we're not getting the food to the right places to feed them. And we're quickly depleting our natural resources in, in our, on Mother Earth um, due to the overproduction of food when we grow enough food to feed everybody. We just need to get it to the right place. Now, where are the biggest problems that you see? There, there's food loss all along the supply chain, all along the system. In, in your book, you point out some of the problems, but maybe you can take us to some of the target areas that we can start to think about a little bit more. Sure. Well, more than 50% of all the food that's lost happens in Asia. And it happens because of uh, lack of technologies, um, lack of, of, of education on uh, modern farming techniques. And these are things that are easy to change. So if you look at all the food that's wasted uh, on the planet, the number one category is grains. That represents 25% of the food that's lost. In developing countries, when grains are harvested, many times they're just left out on open tarps. And they're lost to weather, they're lost to birds, they're lost to pests where simple grain silos would make a big difference. If you look at the next five categories of food that are lost, um, fruits and vegetables, um, meat, dairy, and seafood, those five categories represent greater than 50% of all the food that's lost on the planet. And they all have one thing in common. We can extend the food supply in those categories with simple refrigeration techniques. And what we're learning is that the lack of that, those refrigeration techniques called the cold chain is really prohibiting our ability to save more food and feed more people. The UN uh, estimates um, that 23% of all the food that's lost in developing countries is because there's this lack of the cold chain, lack of refrigeration. And so we know if we can get those products to the right place, we can make a big difference. We're talking with John Mandyke. He's the co-author of a book called Food Foolish, The Hidden Connection Between Food Waste, Hunger, and Climate Change. His day job, though, is Chief Sustainability Officer at United Technologies Corporation. I think it's fair to say UTC probably has a dog in this fight, right? If you're talking about uh, a cold chain trying to make sure that uh, food is refrigerated, uh, UTC has companies that actually do some of this. Talk about the, um, the corporate piece of this. Absolutely. So we believe we keep more food fresh before it reaches your refrigerator than anybody else. So we do it with marine container refrigeration systems, truck trailer refrigeration systems, and supermarket refrigeration systems. These are known, known as the cold chain. It's the seamless, interconnected um, network of refrigeration that keeps our food fresh and safe from farm to our fork. Um, and so we have a unique insight into the world's global food supply. And what we see concerns us. What, what we're concerned about is how we're going to feed a growing planet in a sustainable way. And we think there is a better way to do it. So but before we get into some of the, the technologies that you're talking about, I mean, one of the things that we've discussed quite a bit in our program and that requires a little bit of a change in the way we think about food is where and how far food should go after it's grown. Um, later in the program, we're going to be talking about the kind of unusual notion that we would be eating Florida strawberries in the dead of uh, Connecticut February, or that we'd be eating bananas from halfway around the world as a regular part of our diet. One very simple thing that a lot of, lot of people talk about is, what if we just ate more food that traveled less far? If we grew more food that was native to the place where we are, we took that a shorter distance so we didn't have the refrigeration or some of the other uh, greenhouse gas issues of making those long trips, and we just ate in an entirely different way. Well, we live in a global food system. That's, that's how the planet has evolved. Um, 
and there are benefits to that. There are nutritional benefits to that. There are, uh, there are uh, product choice benefits to that. Take the banana that you had mentioned. Americans eat twice as many bananas as they eat apples. We, we are in love with bananas, and for, for good reason. They're very nutritious. Uh, they're convenient. They're a handy snack. Um, they can be transported to school easily um, and consumed in an easy fashion. So there's many benefits to bananas. So there are no bananas grown in the United States. So for us to now go back and say, well, we should just stop eating bananas, I think is a reversal of the progress of society. The question we ask is, how can we get the banana to Connecticut in a more sustainable way? And that's where we're dedicating our technology. So for example, we were the first in the world to develop marine container refrigeration that would transport these bananas using a natural refrigerant, replacing a chemical refrigerant. And by doing that, we can reduce the climate impact, the carbon impact of marine container refrigeration by 28%. So we know technologies can help us green the cold chain, which we're talking about. And then with a green cold chain, we can go after this bigger problem of food waste and really make a difference from a climate standpoint. And just before we get off this topic, though, I think the thing that I was getting at is, yes, we probably won't reverse the, the human nature that has gotten us eating bananas year-round. But I think there's something to be said that, well, apples here are plentiful, bananas are less plentiful. If perhaps we ate more apples as a nutritious snack and we ate fewer bananas, we would not have some of the issues that we have getting bananas <laughs> to market here. Well, there's no question that we need to support our local farmers. Uh, they're the backbone uh, uh, of our country, and um, there's no question about that. But there's a limit to where local farming supply can go in Connecticut or in New England, for that matter. And so where we can't feed ourselves through the local supply, we have to look at the global food system to do that. And while we do it, we have to make sure that we're doing it in the most sustainable way we can. Let's go to Dave, who's calling from Berlin. Hi there, Dave. Go ahead. I just did a little math, and it comes out to about 1.1 pounds of food waste per day per person in the world. And, you know, to me, that seems when you figure spoilage and transportation, and part of that waste is maybe bananas that you're going to, banana peels that you're going to compost. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't seem like that huge a number when you kind of divide it up by person. So, so you don't think a, a pound of food waste is that big a deal, Dave? When you figure that a lot of that does, only a third of that is like actually at my plate. I think you said a third. I mean, that means basically four ounces of food I'm wasting a day. That doesn't seem, and most of that food will go back into either a compost heap or goes back into the earth and is eventually going to become plants again. Well, Dave, it's not like yeah, it, you know, it disappears. Well, Dave, thank you very much for that. Uh, John, what do you say? Well, I mean, that's assuming that everybody's getting the food, right? And so there's nearly a billion people who go hungry on the planet every day, 800 million people. That's one in nine that don't get enough food every day. That's the equivalent population of the entire United States, the entire European Union that goes to bed hungry. That's the inefficiency in the system where we have enough food for them, yet they don't have access to it. Um, how would cutting the food waste problem across the world help to reduce climate emissions? So the carbon footprint of food waste was just revised upward by the United Nations uh, to 3.6 gigatons. So that's all the carbon, all the energy we put into the food that we throw away. So think about fuel for tractors, electricity for water pumps in the field, power for food, packaging stations, 3.6 gigatons of CO2. 
If you measured food waste as a country, it would be the world's third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. That's the scale of this issue. We can do something about this. this I contend that the low-hanging fruit for climate protection is literally rotting in front of us, and it is the food waste problem. We can make a big difference. When it comes to increased refrigeration capacity, I assume that that does not come at a zero uh, carbon emissions um, level, right? I mean, in order to expend the energy to refrigerate food, that costs us something too, doesn't it? Absolutely. So we ask the same question, and uh, we have independent research that shows that if we grow the coal chain in developing countries to the same level we have it in the developed world, we can actually get a 10 times net benefit in greenhouse gas reductions simply by avoiding the food waste. That's the scale of the issue. And we have a long way to go. If you look at a country like Ethiopia, the United Nations estimates that people in Ethiopia have two liters per person of refrigeration capacity access. You compare that to the United States, we have 344 liters per person. That's the disparity in the system where in places like Ethiopia and Africa and Asia, food is literally out on the streets rotting. When we can, we can save that food, we can feed more people, and we can lower environmental emissions. What about food safety standards? Something we've talked about on the program in the past is the, the way in which we label food or how long food is good for, and I'm using air quotes there, has an awful lot to do with regulations, sometimes lawsuits and other things that don't have any basis in reality. There's an awful lot of food, I guess what I'm saying is, that has a life that's a lot longer than what the sell-by date actually allows for. Are we doing something wrong there? Do those regulations in your mind need to be changed? Right. Well, there's actually uh, two issues there. One is the uh, food packaging uh, uh, standards, and there are varying standards. And I think we explored those in the book. And I think, you know, people are coming to consensus that we need uh, some type of uniform system that's uh, perhaps easier for consumers to, to understand. But food safety standards are a different issue, and they're equally as important. These are the specifications by which we're going to transport food, milk, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, those standards are critically important to keeping our food supply safe, but they also have the added benefit of jump-starting ways that we're actually going to preserve food. In many parts of the world, we don't have food safety standards, and so those are a good first-step policy that will keep food safe, but also keep food fresh and extend food supplies. What do you suggest that consumers do on this end? Because a lot of what we're talking about is how to get uh, different types of refrigeration technology into the hands of maybe people in developing countries, trying to figure out ways to make sure that food doesn't just rot in the fields. But when it comes to American consumers and our propensity to buy more than we actually consume, to just throw food away willy-nilly while the rest of the, food, uh, rest of the world goes starving, what can consumers do? Well, it starts with awareness. I think understanding that there is a consequence to throwing food away. Um, but we can do simple things. You know, since I've uh, started writing this book, um, I, we've changed the, our own behavior in my household. I do a lot of the food shopping in my house. Before, I would shop with my eyes. And you go into a grocery store, and things are beautiful, and you put them into your cart, and you bring them home, and then you realize you're traveling, your kids have soccer practice, your wife's away, you don't eat the food, you throw it away. Now I shop with a plan. If I don't have a plan for the food I'm putting in the basket, I simply don't buy it. We can do simple things like that. 
Uh, more sophisticated things are coming down the road. New apps are being developed to help us avoid food waste at the consumer level. This is all supporting a new national goal that was announced just two months ago by the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture and our EPA. And we have our first food waste reduction goal in the United States, which is to reduce uh, food waste 50 percent by 2030. I think big goals like that are important because they'll spur creative consumer awareness actions to do something about it. I, I want to go to another phone call from Gary in West Hartford. And Gary is following up on a question I asked earlier. Uh, uh, Gary, thank you so much for calling. Uh, what's on your mind? The question that I have pertains to the cold chain in developing nations where the guests said that there's a lot of problems with food lost. Well, the cold chain requires electricity, I presume. So, And a lot of these developing nations want to use coal, particularly India, which has got 300 million people that don't have electricity, to you know, supply electricity, which I guess you'd use for the refrigeration. So how's that going to work? Yeah, and thank you very much, Gary, for following that up. And that's what I was getting at earlier, John, is is you know not all energy is created equal. And one of the things that I know, and we're going to talk before you go about the, the recent global climate talks, is trying to get more nations on more of a level playing field around their carbon emissions. But it is absolutely true that in many developing nations, they're burning... Uh, coal, and they have very dirty sources of electricity. You improve the coal chain. Yes, of course, you don't waste as much food, but you're emitting an awful lot of carbon into the air. Yeah, it's a great question. So we look at it at a couple different levels. Um, electricity is needed for supermarket refrigeration, um, and, and you're absolutely correct. So the, the, the burden on manufacturers like us is how do we make it more energy efficient so that it's operating with the least amount of energy regardless of the fuel source? Uh, the, the number one area that helps preserve our food is actually transport refrigeration, truck trailer refrigeration, where a lot of food is lost on long, hot supply routes. Um, and so in that case, it's actually running off of the diesel engine of the car or the, or, the, or the truck. And so, again, we spend a lot of our research and development making sure those systems are as fuel efficient as they can be to reduce carbon. Yeah, diesel can be pretty dirty. Sure. <laughs> but despite all that, the, num- the, the issue of food waste is so enormous that growing the cold chain, the truck trailer refrigeration, supermarket refrigeration, is 10 times less from a climate impact than avoiding the wasted food. That's what the research is showing us. And so we're going to make those systems as green as they can be because we know that they have the ability to solve this problem. And with a green coal chain, we can make an enormous stride in reducing the carbon emissions on this planet from the issue of food waste. It's an interesting idea. Before I let you go, you, you were recently at these at these climate talks. What did you What did you learn there? What did you see there? Things that maybe make make you hopeful. Things that maybe make you scratch your head. <laughs> well, you know, certainly there's a lot to be hopeful for, and, and United Technologies welcomes the, the climate deal that was reached. It's it's just historic for for our planet. When I was there um, at COP21, I was there speaking on the issue of food waste, trying to broaden the awareness that this is a climate issue. I could feel the momentum uh, there. There's a lot of hope. There's a lot of energy. I think uh, the world is in a much better place this week than we were last week because we're going to finally address the climate issue in a holistic fashion. But when it comes to our food, we need a paradigm shift because Today, the U.N. says to feed a planet of 2050, where we're going to have 9.6 billion people, 35% more on the planet, we need to grow our agricultural production 60 to 70% to do that. We contend we don't have the land, we don't have the water, and we don't have the environmental license to do that when we grow enough food today to feed everybody. 
that's the issue of food waste, that we can extend our food supplies without growing the environmental emissions that will come from a much larger agricultural base. Uh, John Mandike is Chief Sustainability Officer at United Technologies Corporation. He's co-author of Food Foolish, The Hidden Connection Between Food Waste, Hunger, and Climate Change. Thanks so much for coming in, John. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. Coming up next, better strawberries through chemistry. That's the conversation coming up on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today on the program, we're talking about the food we eat. We were just talking about food waste. Coming up, we're going to be talking about the banana, something that, well, Americans eat an awful lot of, and it may be threatened. But now we're going to turn to the strawberry. It's something that, well, you used to only eat around June in America, certainly in places like Connecticut, but now it is ubiquitous. It is everywhere. And some new reporting from the folks at Reveal uh, shows how the strawberry went from seasonal delicacy to staple fruit and some of the problems that that has caused. Andy Donahue is a senior editor at Reveal. It's a new national public radio show and podcast from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. We've been featuring their specials. It's going to come to our air full-time starting in January. And Andy Donahue, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, John. We're going to talk a little bit more about the strawberries that get to your plate in just a moment and what it means for farm workers. But you start the story in kind of an unusual place. You take us on a chemistry lesson all the way back to World War One. Maybe you can take us through this a little bit, Andy. In World War One, uh, chemical weapons were sort of a big, you know, a big deal. You've got all these pictures, um, historical pictures in, uh, from back then of people wearing, you know, the gas masks. So um, as they're fighting the wars. Um, you know, they start to um, deploy these chemical weapons, and uh, the you know to come to to fight those or to sort of protect themselves. The soldiers wore these gas masks. Well, they um, found this one chemical called chloropicrin that was actually the molecules were small enough that it would sneak into the gas mask, and it would cause the soldiers to actually throw up, and then they'd have to throw off their um, gas masks, and then they would ingest the other uh, deadly chemical. So. Um, it got this name vomiting gas. And after the war, they had a lot of it left over. And um, as they often do, they sort of search for other ways of using it. The U.S. government just had these big stockpiles. And um, eventually they learned um, that there were some uh, pineapple growers out in Hawaii that were dealing with all kinds of bad things in the soil. And they thought they'd tried this chloropicker and this vomiting gas they had left over, shipped it out to um, Hawaii, and researchers pumped it. It pumped it into the ground, 
and it did uh, wonders for pineapple growers. It just um, allowed them to grow 20 more tons of pineapples per acre. And then, uh, so after that, it just became the sort of staple of agriculture and um, eventually made its way to the strawberry industry where it became a real foundation. Let's actually hear just a, a quick clip from your documentary. Here's University of Kansas history professor Edmund Russell describing uh, this change between chemical warfare and what came next. So they started emphasizing these civilian uses of chemical weapons and, in fact, said we really should not be called the Chemical Warfare Service. We should be called the Chemical Peace Service because that's mainly what we are doing. And that's what you described a moment ago, Andy, this this notion that America just has so much of these really deadly and difficult chemicals that they're going to try to find ways to use them. What they did was they, they helped the pineapple crop in Hawaii, and they eventually make their way through through this idea of fumigants into the strawberry industry. So uh, by the 1970s, this is something that was pretty widespread, right? Yes. Yeah, so this, the strawberries are really, you know, this really fragile fruit, um, beautiful, nutritious, but uh, really susceptible to disease, and they were also very difficult to ship because they would bruise easily and they would only last a couple days. And so um, the fumigants help deal with the fact that they're really susceptible to these diseases. So you'd have these um, fungus uh, and these worms that would sort of sweep through entire um, uh, strawberry-growing areas and just decimate them. And so what they learned was before they even planted any strawberries, they could just pump the soil uh, full of this gas or these different kinds of gases and uh, really just almost sanitize the soil. It was almost like an insurance policy. So you didn't put it on there when you had problems. It was just every time you went to plant, um, before you planted, you would uh, apply those streaming. And what this meant was that producers were able to grow an awful lot more strawberries than they ever had before. As a matter of fact, they were growing so many strawberries that they didn't have enough people eating them. So that's what led to, well, how I started this program with uh, the strawberry ending up on my cereal box as a suggested serving size, right? Strawberries were were then touted as something that could be used all the time because, well, these growers were growing so many of them, they needed to get people to eat them. Right. They had so many, uh, you know, they had all these sort of innovations. They're, they learned how to uh, sort of breed hardier stocks of strawberries. Um, they learned to start here in California. They learned to start growing them up in northern California. And then when they're small, uh, ship them down to southern California so they can kind of emulate the seasonal shift from, from cold weather to warm weather that you would have in the spring. And um, with, you know, with the use of these fumigants, uh, they really sort of uh, create this uh, world where all of a sudden they're growing way more than they ever have before. Um, but they, so they have the supply, but they don't have the demand. And so um, there's a sort of a strawberry, the California Strawberry Commission is a sort of uh, marketing and publicity agency here um, in California uh, that represents most of the growers. And California does grow most of the, uh, the country's strawberries. And, and so they go on this uh, really sort of ingenious marketing campaign. And, you know, there's a reason that the strawberry is on the cover of the Cool Whip. Uh, you know, that's not a happenstance. That is sort of, uh, you know, a sort of a mutually beneficial marketing uh, operation by both of them. So strawberry recipes are all in, you know, all the magazines of the time. Um, they're on uh, the covers of, you know, cereal boxes and, and all kinds of different things. And, uh, you know, they're even, uh, the strawberry industry even sort of um, pushing for this, uh, this new um, doll and this new character cartoon. And that becomes known as strawberry shortcake. So 
they have this really successful marketing campaign and it works. Um, Americans used to, back in the 70s, eat about two pounds of strawberries per person. Um, and now we eat about eight. So we eat four times as many strawberries as we used to. And a big part of that, of course, is because people are eating them year-round. They're eating them out of season, and they're eating them in places far away from where they were grown. That's in part due to the ability to grow them much more efficiently. But other things uh, took part as well, like you know the development of the interstate highway system, the refrigerated trucks that we talked about in the earlier segment that allow you to take strawberries for a long way, and those now ubiquitous clamshell packs, those help to protect strawberries in a way that we we, we couldn't have before we developed uh, some of those technologies, right? Yeah, and, you know, if you think about it, um, before that, uh, there was just really no way to get to go from Southern California to upstate New York or to Connecticut um, in, uh, you know, in a, in a really quick fashion and get a strawberry um, in the store. By that time, you know, if you didn't have a refrigerated truck and if it bruised after every bump it went over, uh, you would have just had sort of a big mushy, maybe maybe strawberry jam could get there, but uh, you're not going to get a whole big beautiful fruit there. So your story and reveal takes us through some of the consequences of this. I guess the first thing we should ask is these chemical fumigants that get injected into the soil that allow strawberries to grow so readily in so many places year-round, is, is that harmful to the consumer? As we eat a strawberry, are we getting some of those fumigants into us? So specifically with fumigants, no. So um, the strawberry is on the sort of dirty dozen list of um, of uh, foods you need to look out for for pesticide residue, but that's for other pesticides that are used. Specifically, we're talking about these uh, these, these gases are actually applied before the strawberry is even planted. So uh, these specifically don't have any effect on the consumer, um, but they do have a whole range of, of environmental and, and health problems. Um, you know, the methyl bromide, which is sort of you know one of the um, you know foundations of the industry. Uh, it was uh, targeted as one of the um, uh, primary reasons that uh, it was the hole in the ozone layer. Um, there's a bunch of other sort of uh, developmental problems um, that come from some of the other fumigants, and um, they've also been linked to cancer as well. So that is uh, a real risk for the people who live around these areas and for the workers. And um, it should be said, you know, these are grown uh, strawberries really like to grow on the strawberry or on the California coast, which is where people also like to live. So these aren't um, really far off agricultural uh, rural areas where nobody lives and it's just fields forever. It is um, really sort of uh, when you go to these communities like Oxnard, California, in Ventura County, uh, the strawberry fields are really sort of integrated in the community. They go right up against suburban cul-de-sacs. Um, there's entire schools that are surrounded on all four by strawberry fields. So you have people living, working, going to school around these uh, chemicals uh, every day. Uh, the biggest brunt, as you talk about in your reporting of all this, falls on the people uh, who pick the strawberries, often seasonal workers uh, who are very, very low paid, and there are other issues with their working conditions. So they're being exposed both to these chemical fumigants that rise up out of the soil, but then also to other pesticides that are applied from the air. Can you talk about that a little bit as well? Because I think that that's a big piece of our story here. Some of these workers are working in very chemical-rich environments in which they're exposed to an awful lot of stuff directly that the rest of us wouldn't want to be anywhere near. Right. I mean, it's uh, it's just sort of known as a, as a hazard of the job there. Um, 
uh, you know, there's all sorts of efforts by community groups to make sure that people are um, educated on what they can be doing. You know, a big problem is that uh, farm workers can come home and have that pesticide residue on their clothes and on their boots, and they'd come in and give their kids a big hug uh, when they get home. So, you know, one of the things they have them do is always have an extra pair of clothes in the in your truck, and so when you get home, change before you even come in. Um, all those sort of things. I think what's um, especially interesting about the about the strawberries though, and the fumigants is that this is something that you know at least the, at least when you're a farm worker, you're sort of signing up to this job. Um, but the fumigants are something that affects everybody in these communities. So just by if you're a kid going to school or just if you're a homeowner that happened to buy a house uh, in the community that you live and work, um, these are sort of these, uh, uh, you know, sort of silent and uh, invisible gases that nobody really knows are around um, that can be causing harm. So the more that we learn about this, Andy, is anything changing? I mean, have people taken this on as an issue or because of the obvious strength of lobbies around fruit and vegetables, kind of the way we do things currently, have we not seen a whole lot of changes in the way strawberries are produced in America? Well, I think probably the answer is yes to both of those. It is something that people have picked up um, in uh, the 90s, they actually banned methyl bromide. Uh, they put a ban on it across uh, all developed countries um, because it was causing the hole in the ozone layer. Um, but what you saw was the, the strawberry industry, specifically in California, be very good at lobbying against those regulations. So those were supposed to be totally phased out by 20 uh, by 2005, and in 2015, you, know, you still have them being used in California. Um, so. There are people that are fighting, you know, against these or trying, trying to raise awareness. But again, you, you do have the, um, a powerful lobby as well. One thing they're trying to do in California right now is um, create um, larger buffer zones, sort of areas where you can't um, use any pesticides around schools because, again, we have uh, so many schools that are right next to these fields. Is the notion of organic strawberry something that changes this at all? I mean, are, are organics in this field something that actually are providing a much safer alternative, both for consumers, for workers, and for those who live near strawberry production? I think the short answer to that is yes, but there is a big catch. Um, all uh, all strawberries grown in California do use some amount of fumigants. So the organic ones use a lot less. But because of, again, uh, another loophole in the law, which is sort of a, a continuing theme in the story, um, the, any, I, I talked about at the start about how they grow. Um, they start off strawberries in northern California and they move them to the south. So um, they can use the, the fumigants when they start them up in the north um, because in that sense it's sort of a they use the chemical for shipping and not agriculture. So it's considered, uh, you can still be considered organic. Um, there is now a movement to try to start uh, growing those um, organic as well. Now, they don't; those don't come with as many of the consequences that um, conventional strawberries do because um, that chemical use isn't so close to, to homes and businesses and schools. How did you get so interested in this in this really weird world of this fruit <laughs> that we probably shouldn't be eating here in Connecticut in the wintertime? Yeah, um, that's funny. Uh, I, you know... I was really interested in the the um, 
the effect of the chemicals on uh, the people who live around these communities. I just I thought that was something that um, really doesn't get explored very much. Me, even as a consumer, I was very focused on, you know, what uh, buying this uh, organic food would mean for me or buying them. If I bought uh, conventional apples, what would that mean for my little kids? And then I started to realize that actually, I think the first question we need to be asking is, what does this mean for the community that grow it? I guess a, a last thing for you, Andy. Should we be eating strawberries here in Connecticut? I mean, should we actually be consuming this product that you're reporting on? Well, I can't, I'm not going to um, tell you exactly how to eat because, um, you know, it's probably better to eat uh, strawberries than Doritos or something like that. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, my advice for people is always just to try to uh, buy seasonal, try to buy local, um, and, if you know, if you can, buy it from somebody you know or trust or, you know, from a farmer's market where you can just talk to the person that grew them and understand uh, what kind of practices they use. Andy Donahue is a senior editor at Reveal. It's a new national public uh, radio program and podcast from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Find out more on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live, if you want to listen to these stories about strawberries. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks, John. Coming up next on the program, we're going to be talking about another fruit that you may eat for breakfast that comes an awful long way. It's the banana, and it may be threatened. That's next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up on tomorrow's show, from a land use standoff in Oregon to a gun rights standoff looming in Washington, the U.S. Constitution is under daily scrutiny in American life. We will explore the foundational, the outdated, the unusual document called the Constitution and find out what it really means in the 2016 edition of Our Constitution State. That's coming up on tomorrow's show, and I do hope you can join us. Today we're talking about the food we eat, a lot of the food we waste, and where this food comes from. We've talked so far about food waste and refrigeration. We've also talked about strawberries that are grown in difficult conditions in California with a lot of chemicals that come into our plates right here in Connecticut. Next, we're going to turn to bananas, something threatened by disease. Dr. Gert Kima is a professor at Wageningen University and Research Center, co-author of the study Worse Comes to Worst, Bananas and Panama Disease, When Plant and Pathogen Clones Meet. Dr. Kima, welcome to where we live. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. What is Panama disease? First of all, explain it to us. Panama disease is a fungal disease. It infects the roots of a banana plant, then colonizes the vein system of the plant, eventually occludes them, and therefore the plant starts wilting and eventually dies. And it's not a new disease. It's been around for quite some time, right? Yes, it's not a new disease. It's caused by a fungus that we call Fusarium oxesplum cubensa. And um, it has caused a major epidemic in bananas in the previous century in a cultivar called Gros Michel that was essentially wiped out and really, um, you know, knocked down the entire banana industry in, in Latin America. It, it knocked down the banana industry and essentially changed the type of banana that we eat. This uh, Gros Michel banana was uh, very popular in the middle of the 20th century and it was all but wiped out by Panama disease? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So the, the basically the only way to control the disease was to eventually uh, grow another banana uh, cultivar or accession. Um, and that's the one we eat now all over the world, which is called Cajunese banana. So that's a banana that is about 95% of the entire export trade. Um, but if you just look at the figures, uh, export of Global banana production is about 15%, so 85% is really 
for local markets, and their Cavendish is also very important. So the um, the, the interesting thing is that Cavendish is actually not a, a, a result of a breeding program. It was a natural clone that was found somewhere, uh, most likely in Vietnam, and by English botanists, arrived in botanical gardens and eventually was saved in a botanical garden in the UK. And there it was discovered, particularly because it's resistant to the strains that caused that epidemic, that Panama disease epidemic in Gros Michel. So, actually, it is yeah. still resistant to these strains. And so that's an extraordinary example of the power of uh, resistance in a plant, natural resistance. It already holds for over 50 years. The the natural resistance is something that's so fascinating. We're going to be talking about what's, what's happening now with this Panama disease. But I guess I wonder, uh, Dr., how... Uh, a plant species that is reliant on natural resistance is different than something that we may have developed over time by breeding programs in order to try to resist a disease. I mean, is this unusual in the in the fruit world, in the fruit uh, growing world, that we're relying now on a crop that essentially developed its own resistance as opposed to trying to create some sort of a superfruit? No, no, there is essentially no difference. Uh, so in, in the plant breeding industry, we also uh, uh, con- continuously generate new cultivars with new combinations of uh, genetic characteristics, and among those genetic characteristics is host resistance. Uh, so mankind cannot generate resistance genes. These occur naturally in any crop. Um, the peculiar thing of banana actually is that it is a single clone, the Cavendish clone, that has grown already for so long and still resistant to the strains that caused the previous epidemic. That's absolutely unique. Uh, but the genes itself that are responsible for the resistance, um, they don't make a difference whether you look at banana or whether you look at potato or wheat or strawberry. Uh, so that, that's really natural genes that are simply there. We're talking to Dr. Gert Kima, who is co-author of a study, Worse Comes to Worst, Bananas and Panama Disease, When Plant and Pathogen Clones Meet. If you have questions about uh, fruits like bananas that we rely on for our diets and uh, where they may be headed, 860-275-7266. So tell us, sir, about this latest mutation and, and how it is spreading and why it is such a threat. Yeah. Well, it's actually not a mutation. It is simply another genetic lineage of that fungus. Um, you know, the, the, the gene center, or let's say the largest diversity of bananas, occurs in Southeast Asia. And with that, you also see uh, usually also a very large diversity of any kind of pathogen on such a crop. Now, Fusarium, the fungus that causes this Panama disease, has a huge diversity also in Southeast Asia. Now, so this strain that is uh, threatening Cavendish bananas originates from Indonesia, and it was discovered in Taiwan in the uh, late 1990s. There caused a major epidemic in Cavendish, and that was, of course, surprising because Cavendish was so resistant to Panama disease, uh, almost to the level that everybody took it for granted that banana is now resistant to Panama disease. And all of a sudden, there's that new strain uh, people weren't even aware in those days, hey, what is this? And then they found out, well, this is Panama disease, so there is another strain. And since then, that strain has really disseminated throughout Southeast Asia. And in our research, we have now shown that it's moving west. We found it in Pakistan, in Jordan, in Lebanon. It has been reported in Africa. 
And that's really, you know, triggered a lot of attention because now the industry in Central America is very alert because they have the experience of the power of these epidemics and they really want to do everything to prevent that it spreads to Latin America. And what we show in our study is that essentially one and the same fungal strain that is disseminated in all these different countries. And that raises really all the flags because apparently we have to conclude that awareness campaigns, quarantine measures have not worked out. Mm. And how does it spread? How does it get from from Southeast Asia to Africa to potentially to Latin America? Yeah, we don't have the final proof for it, but it is very, very likely that this is mostly by human traffic. And so this fungus is a soil-borne fungus, so uh, when you don't clean your shoes after being in, in, in an infested plantation, you very easily move the fungus with the soil under your shoes with unclean tools. So if you look at the dynamics of uh, workers in banana plantations that, that work in this country, then go to another country, uh, or people that take plants along, you know, even if you don't see the symptoms, the plant can be infected. And so this is all a very, very powerful way of disseminating the disease. On top of that, you have natural reasons. And so, for instance, typhoons in the Philippines cause a lot of flooding, and flooding really is a, a very efficient way to disseminate this fungus in soil particles over longer, longer distances. So it's fair to say that some of our changing global weather patterns may be playing a role here. Oh, absolutely. You know, the El Nino effects, heavy, heavy, heavy rains causing floods, that is, if, if, if these hit those infested areas, it's, that's really, uh, from the plant disease point of view, also really a drama because it expands very rapidly. And since it's a soil-borne disease, it's also very difficult to control. So the the uh, the fear in Central America and Latin America for a new incursion of Panama disease in Cavendish bananas in that part of the world is is very realistic. We just don't know when it happens. We cannot predict it, but it's very likely going to happen. If that happens, and you say it's very likely, does that mean the end of the banana industry as we know it, or do we find, as we have in the past, some new type of banana that's resistant to this strain of the disease that we can then go on growing? Yeah, it it will not be the end of the banana industry, but it is a very, very risky uh, thing, and, and you just have to look at the history. As we said earlier on in the program, Gros Michel has been totally wiped out by this fungus, and the same is going to happen with Cavendish. But, of course, nowadays we have more tools, and so we can detect the fungus much quicker than we could in the past. We can produce very clean, healthy uh, tissue culture plants. Uh, so we have many more tools now to quarantine a fungus. But as I said earlier on, apparently it hasn't worked out yet in practice. And so there is a lot to learn still, and that's what we are doing in our programs. We develop tools and methods to really slow down the epidemic. Um, and as you said, is right, you know, when Gros Michel uh, was wiped out, there was all of a sudden, fortunately, Cavendish. Right now, we don't have anything to replace Cavendish. And so there are cultivars that have a partial resistance that are not as susceptible, so they may be planted under particular conditions to slow down the epidemic, but eventually the most strategic solution, of course, is to breed new banana varieties that are resistant. But that's a long-term process. That takes at least 10 years. So if we want to achieve that, then we really have to start now. And so we can we can start breeding programs. We can genetically engineer bananas for resistance to Panama disease. 
That's all possible, but it really requires action, and it should be done now. We just have one minute, sir, but I will ask you the same thing that I've asked our other guests as we've talked about food and how we get it to our plates here in America. Do you think that some of this is the consequence of the globalization of food, the fact that we do indeed ship our fruits such long distances uh, all over the place as a, as a regular habit of eating in places like America and Western Europe? Well, that's definitely part of it. And as we said earlier on, Cavendish clones are grown around the world. And essentially, it's one and the same clone is being exported to Western countries. From the agronomical point of view and also from the plant disease point of view, this is an extremely risky situation, something you really would like to avoid. Hmm. Dr. Gert Kima is professor at Wageningen University and Research Center, co-author of the study, Worse Comes to Worst, Bananas and Panama Disease When Plant and Pathogen Clones Meet. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. You're most welcome. Our program was produced by Lydia Brown with Tucker Ives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. You can continue our conversation on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks for joining us.